The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So here we are. Good evening. Nice to see you all on this beautiful summer night. Pretty amazing uh, streak of weather, huh? Yeah. So um, my name is Mira. Mira Young, as some of you know and some of you don't know. And I've been a longtime member here at Common Ground in this Sangha. And in the community, I've been um, teaching, um, sharing the Dharma, meditation. I teach in several different settings um, um, to um, mental health professionals and others. I even teach a course on happiness at the U this fall, hopefully. And I'm also a psychotherapist who integrates um, Buddhist um, practice and mindfulness and compassion into work with um, clients in my private practice and in um, a grief and loss center in St. Paul. And uh, I'm uh, mainly a practitioner just like you and continuing to integrate practice into my life and on this path of awakening. And I've been finding it very, 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 very challenging to work with my own reactivity and generational trauma in this body and in what's going on in our world today um, and in this country. And tonight's talk, um, I'm going to be sharing some teachings from some uh, wise um, Dharma wisdom holders in the Buddhist tradition and the Buddha himself, um, hopefully to support this journey. Um, Tonight's talk topic is um, Dharma Perspectives for Moral Suffering and Moral um, Response or Action. Um, I also initially, I I have a little weird sense of humor. I thought, oh, this would be Dharma Rx, Dharma Medicine for Moral (laughs) Outrage. And oddly enough, um, or not so oddly, um, is my heart is wrenching listening to NPR or occasionally turning on the news in the evening, which I've actually started to um, really care for myself more versus going to bed at night all stirred up. And just feeling um, very viscerally uh, the belly tighten and cling and uh, the heart cry out for the pain that is going on. It's the level of hatred and uh, discrimination and racism. Um, It's just um, hard to bear. And, uh, And then even today, just catching snippets of what was going on. And again, such a, there's no communication. There's so many different versions of reality and so opposed. So um, I'm hoping that tonight is really a call to our wise, compassionate selves to find some ways to be with and respond to the conditions that we're living in as a human being, internally, externally, and both. And it's not a political discussion, although that that may reference, and I apologize if that may um, come up in a way that's not skillful, Um, But that's not my intention. My intention is to really um, find some peace and equanimity and some ways to respond using our practice of awareness um, and love. Um, And it's a high bar. It's a a real challenge. So I'd like to um, offer us some inspiration from Joy Harjo. Are any of you familiar with her? She's the poet laureate of the United States as of 2019, and she's a Native American elder. Um, I was happy to hear that she went to the same university I did many years ago. Um, And she wrote this poem for a friend of hers um, who is becoming 70, and she's not so far behind herself. I highly recommend listening to her. Line. Becoming 70, Joy Harjo. We arrived 
when the days grew legs of night, chocolates were offered, we ate latkes for hours to celebrate light and friends. We kept going despite the dark or a madman in the White House dream. Let's talk about something else, the dog who begs faithfully at the door of goodwill. A biscuit will do, a voice of reason, meat sticks. I dreamed all this, I told her, you and me and Paris. It was impossible to make it through the tragedy without poetry. What are we without winds becoming words? Becoming old children, born to children, born to sing us into love. Another level of love beyond the neighbor's holiday light display, proclaiming goodwill to all men who have lost their way in the dark. Proclaiming goodwill to all who have lost their way in the dark. So um, signs of resiliency and response. Um, I went to the um, Minnesota Institute of Art this last weekend to see the um, heart of the Native American women art exhibit. Have some folks gone yet? quite profound. I felt my consciousness altered two hours wandering through these incredible uh, galleries of every kind of indigenous form of art and craft making. And there, was, there were films um, and landscapes as well. And they had, were, the women were sharing with grand ancestors, grandparents, parents, granddaughters, how they were passing along their resiliency. Um, Joy Harjo said that at one point in this country, the Native American population was 100%, and now it is less than half of 1%. And yet this, this offering, this sharing of love and resilience was so profound And it's like so many indigenous traditions and styles throughout our country and all the way up into Canada, from clothing. And one was an army-style coat with the DNA symbols on the sleeves embroidered. And another was um, the body of a pregnant woman woven as a basket. So there were so many beautiful expressions and really an intention to carry the wisdom and the resiliency, the love and the capacity to continue to pass on what is best and wise within our human um, uh, cultures and backgrounds. So I was very moved by this and um, I highly recommend it and inspired. Um, There was one piece that was um, where you went and you could watch um, a, a film. And I did not know that there was something called Buffalo Bone China. Have you heard of Buffalo Bone China? Bone China, that expression? Well, literally, um, in this exhibit, and I won't spoil it, but Bone China is a type of porcelain that's composed of bone ash and some other materials. And um, it's been defined as wear with a translucent body. And um, it was this British bone china that was made from the bones of the buffalo. And that the, and over there, in the um, end of, in the 16th century, there were 25 to 30,000 million buffalo in this country. And by the end of the 18th century, there were 100 buffalo left. So this is the kind of symbol of um, the kind of genocide and tragedy that we human beings um, can do upon one another. 
and yet there was this resiliency and love shared um, from these women. Um, I'd like to give a couple other more current examples, but I'd like to share from the Buddha's teachings that, you know, there's the Four Noble Truths of Suffering. Familiar with those? The, um, the First Noble Truth, that there is human suffering, it's unavoidable in this earth. And then the second, that there is the cause of it, which is craving wanting things to be other than they are, and the third, that there's some freedom, and the fourth, that there's a path of liberation, which includes morality, ethics, also um, wisdom, and a path of practice, the Eightfold Path, which includes all that. Um, Stephen Batchelor talks about the second noble truth, second noble task is letting go of reactivity, masterfully facets the notion of reactivity and letting go in his work. Reactivity is, you know, versus craving and desire, encompasses greed, hatred, and delusion, and seems more exactly like something which the world is burning, as the Buddha says. So when we're in the reactive state, just take a moment And if there's anyone that's not reactive ever, please see me afterwards, and I will bow at your feet. So what does that reactivity feel like inside? Does it kind of burn, kind of tight? And the the Buddha said, the world is burning. And he says that this reactivity is a naturalistic inheritance encoded in our limbic system rather than in beginningless karma. And he says that the Buddha's great discovery didn't destroy Mara or delusion, the deluder. It revealed a way of being with delusion, not of him. But part of this is letting go. And that embrace is the first task, is also a release. So when we learn to recognize when we're caught in that reactivity and we're burning rather than just acting and reacting, we can recognize that that's our system going off and then we can see a look into how can we just release. And sometimes it's just taking a breath, right? Or feeling your feet or remembering that you don't want to cause harm. You know, do no harm. I also came across um, a, a powerful talk that met me right where that burning, suffering reactivity was um, by um, Joan Halifax, who's from the um, Zen and Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, um, who has a, a powerful talk that I'd like to unpack some with you about exploring moral suffering from a Dharma perspective and talking about integrity. She came um, off of an 800 women uh, international conference uh, that was held recently, as as recent as July 3rd of this year, and she was on fire. She said that um, the women came together from all the different (coughs) Dharma traditions, and they talked about some of the most egregious abuses that had happened to women, to themselves and to others of trauma, of sexual abuse, of teachers who have been abusive and other discrimination, including the, you know, not ordaining women until recently. And she said that they all respected each other and that there was no whining and no complaining and nobody playing the victim card and that everyone was respecting each other and not infighting about whose tradition was better than the other. And um, she said it, and she herself is 75 or 76, and she said it was the most powerful conference that she had ever attended. I was like, wow. So that inspired me. I thought, well, maybe it's possible. She said she felt a lot of trauma, but also a lot of resilience. She examines moral nerve, moral injury, moral distress, moral outrage, moral apathy, and how they inspire us to take action to be a force of the good. 
She said, it is actually important to experience the landscape of moral injury today, but not let it overwhelm us. Not let it overwhelm us. Let it be an engine for our commitment to end the policies and behaviors that are fueling the current situation and giving rise to such egregious suffering. So I'm going to talk about these different kinds of suffering. Um, So what happens when our integrity is compromised? Like right now, like when you hear things in the news or going on in the world in this country, at our borders or other places, like when something is going against what you feel is within your own values and integrity. Just notice how that feels for a moment in your body. Okay. So she says our values are reflected in our behavior and that, that when we feel that disconnect, that chasm between what our values are and what's happening, um, we experience something called moral anguish. Does that fit for people? I, I feel like she put names on the feeling that it's not just, oh, I feel sad about that. It's anguish. It's like it's wrenching. It's beyond belief. And I have to, I will own the fact that, you know, I am a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, so that DNA lives in me. But we all have generational trauma, regardless. We all carry the trauma from our different ancestors and and backgrounds in various ways. So there's a kind of a moral anguish and that we can allow ourselves to feel this kind of moral distress when there's a trespass, when there's harm, when the integrity is being crossed. And then we sometimes feel moral outrage, which is actually a shadow side. Because when we're lost in the outrage, which I have been recently, and that's one of the reasons why you're getting such a heavy-duty talk tonight, is that, you know, it's exhausting to be outraged and getting activated multiple times during the day, every day, week after week. And um, it's like, wow, this is intense. But then she... She nailed it, and she said, admitting that she, we love being self-righteous, and we, we love to get into this anger and disgust and blame, and a term which she borrowed from another woman called recreational bitterness. <laughs> I'm like, nailed. <laughs> you know, I mean, this happens almost nightly in my home, right? I'm, I'm therapist, equanimous by day. I'm sitting with sorrow and pain and compassion. And then I come home or I listen to the news on the way home or I flick it on. And, I'm, and my, my partner and I, and it's like, enough, enough. I'm like, ah. <laughs> completely you know, reacting, but did you hear, and did you know, and how could, and why, and how can we be like this as human beings, pound, pound, gnash, gnash. So, you know, it just goes on, and I thought, yep. And then I'll, you know, can I say it, bitch, moan, complain, blame, you know, attack, and then feel more powerless, more self-righteous. It just um, goes round and round. So um, seeking release and resiliency. So then there's the other shadow side, which is what? Moral apathy. Well, I'll just practice loving kindness and I'll just, it's not so bad, some form of denial, or I just won't pay attention to any of it, or my life is pretty good and, you know, just kind of not really feeling it or being with it, kind of a denial. Well, it doesn't impact me really directly. You know, I'm not at the border. Or, yeah, that's really must be hard, and maybe I'll put a couple dollars in the container. You know, so there's a way that we can also use our practice to cushion us so we don't have to open to the suffering and the, con- and the effects of it around us. 
So this is a shadow side in our practice, and it doesn't mean that we don't radiate and send loving kindness and compassion and don't practice equanimity within, within our, our hearts, and, and that we do do our best to show up and be kind and to each other more and more. Yeah? So um, we need what she calls the right dose of moral outrage that calls others to account and fires the engine of commitment to engage the ones who harm, not the low-level moral outrage of whining, dissing, complaining that does no one any good, or the bypassing of the moral apathy that turns us away from the first noble truth and to turn towards the truth of the suffering, to see it, not flee it, and at our bubbled bubbles of privilege, our practices bypass this truth, um, to not use it in that way. And then moral distress is seeing the injustice so clearly and the moral injury of our country, our policies. Um, And she mentioned that she travels a lot and shares the Dharma and how she feels a lot of shame these days being an American. And um, at this time. So um, let's turn a little bit now towards um, some more antidotes um, for these various types of suffering. And one of them, the last one she talked about was the moral nerve, which is the courage to actually take wise action and respond to it in the ways that we can. And some of the ways, like I said, are very tiny, granular, about you know how we go about our days, how we treat one another, as well as in um, in other actions in the world. So um, there's a book called Blessed Unrest by Paul Hawken, and uh, it's a book called the How the Largest Social Movement in History is Restoring Grace, Justice, and Beauty in the World. And that there are many, many um, NGOs and small groups that are manifesting this underlying resiliency. And as Joan Halifax was also saying and Paul Hawken, that it's like we have those of us perhaps, you know, we're sitting here in the Dharma Hall and you haven't all walked out yet, is the fact that, you know, we do care. And we do want to respond. And it is affecting our hearts and our lives and maybe well people that we personally know, whether we know them or not, are our our family, our fellow family, our humans that we love. And uh, we don't we really want to respond and that it is this inherent resiliency and compassion and care that are like the immune system, the immune response as we in our little grassroots ways small and large, come together and work towards healthy change, restoring the health of this body of humanity in our country and in our world. And so this is happening at a movement that we don't hear about on the, on the normal TV where there's always hearing about what's not happening, but to actually hear and know how many people I know are engaged in some form of activism, of working, um, feeding people, helping, responding, hands-on, on the ground, as well as supporters. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of us doing the inner and outer work every day in many ways all over the planet. You know, even like those kids, right? The kids that are, are for the environment. And, and like some little nine-year-old boy from another country saying, you know, not, not uh, use plastic straws. You know, like um, and young people being active even at a very young age. You know, this is our world. We don't want to live in this way. So on all the different levels, and I don't know if any of you saw the um, biggest small farm. Did anyone see that movie at the Riverview? It's um, yeah, it's uh, about one person's experiment of bringing some really dead leached earth back to life. And, um, and, and it took seven years, and really trusting this process 
It was very difficult to bring it to life with a lot of diversity, determination, and um, you know, care. And so there's many, many um, projects and ways that we can respond, and there are antidotes to this type of uh, moral landscape right now. So um, I'd like to share another um, something from Jack Cornfield. Are any of you familiar with him? He is also writing, it really warms my heart that some of my most respected Dharma uh, senior teachers in their 70s are really writing about um, moral action and the Dharma and how to respond to this level of suffering. Jack Cornfield says, um, and he's a senior Dharma teacher in our tradition, as long as society holds regular and frequent assemblies meeting and in harmony and mutual respect. This is actually the, the, based on the words of the Buddha. They can be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as a society follows the long-held traditions of wisdom and honors its elders, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as a society protects the wives and daughters, the vulnerable among them, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as a society cares for the shrines and sacred places of the natural world, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. That's from the Mahaparinirvana Sutta of the Buddha's last teachings. And that we're going, that it's a misunderstanding, he says, to think that meditation and contemplation are the fulfillment of the Buddhist path, that inner freedom and joy develop only when paired with outer teachings of virtue, respect, and mutual care. The foundation of the Dharma is relational, built on generosity, virtue, and loving kindness. The eightfold path to human suffering and liberation rests on right or wise intention, intentions freed from greed, hatred, and cruelty, wise speech that is true, helpful, not harsh or vain, slanderous or abusive, wise action or right action, actions that are free from causing harm, killing, stealing, and sexual exploitation. And that in his life, the Buddha himself tried to stop wars. Did you know that? He really did try, and he did have some impact on that. And one of the great, um, greatest um, warriors and kings um, walked through his battlefield and felt this tremendous suffering and pain in his heart open. And he, and he actually, during his reign, he turned things around, and for many um, decades, generation for I think I, I can't remember how long it lasted, but for quite a while, he um, was able to create some time of sanity and peace in the world that he lived in, um, based on his own awakening of his heart and the teachings of the Buddha. And we have modern times, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese um, Buddhist monk during the Vietnam War, a peace activist, Maha Gosananda of Cambodia during the killing fields, um, Thai abbots that have taken their robes and ordained the oldest trees as elders of the forest to protect ecosystems from logging. So there's many, many um, examples in our Dharma world of people being what's called a bodhisattva, taking compassionate action and really putting themselves, their lives on the line, you know, just like, you know, with the civil rights, with human rights, you know, to really see, you know, to have that courage and to come together to actually respond, not only sit on our cushion. So I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, we need to look at skillful ways to respond. So um, this is uh, another poem by Joe Harjo I'd like to share with you. Calling for the spirit back from wandering the earth in its human feet. I'll share part of it. It's kind of long, but it's, it's great. Um, put down the bag of potato chips, that white bread, the bottle of pop, 
Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote. Open the door, then close it behind you. Take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth, gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing it, it will lift your spirit, lift to fly to the star's ears and back. Acknowledge this earth who cared for you since you were a dream planting itself precisely within your parents' desire. Let your moccasin feet take you to the encampment of the guardians who have known you before time, who will be there after time. They will sit before the fire, and there will be without time. Let the earth stabilize your post-colonial insecure jitters. Be respectful of the small insects, birds, animals, and people who accompany you. Ask their forgiveness for the harm we humans have brought down upon them. Don't worry. The heart knows the way. Though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, and wars, those who will despise you because they despise themselves, the journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred or a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle to keep the fire burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. The heart knows the way. You know, we may not know what to do, but I think that how to be, how do we choose to be with immense suffering? How do we want to respond? Um, again, it may, there's a Japanese phrase called mano no aware. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Does anyone speak Japanese? Mano no aware. It has. It sounds like the word aware. It's the pathos of things, a melancholy appreciation of the transiency of existence. It's a slender sadness to initialize and inspire us to be a force of the good, no matter how small, in the threads of our lives. I think of it myself as like three R's, responsiveness, resilience, and release responsiveness, resilience, and release. Um, The Buddha taught that it's not enough just to send prayers. There's a story of the Buddha where he went to a place where a monk was covered with sores and quite quite suffering, and the monks were there praying but not tending to the suffering directly. And he felt a sense of disgust, and he began to tend the wounds of the monk himself. Whatever source he had, the Buddha bathed him and soothed him. And that was the way he responded to actually respond to the suffering, not just chant prayers. So um, he himself says, take wise action. Respond to the suffering in direct ways. Um, He also says that our mind should be equanimous. And there's the simile of the saw. I always laugh when I share this one because I was in a Dharma leader program at Spirit Rock many years ago, and we were we were doing little Dharma, um, little Dharma dramas, and we would take things like suttas and different teachings, and then we'd sort of perform them in some way at the end of the retreat. And my one group did the simile of the saw, and they actually went to such an extreme version that they sent someone out to get a power saw. And then they had people dressed up in a way. They obviously did not start the power saw, but it was an example of like, do you know the simile? I'll read it to you. Monks, even if bandits were to savagely sever you limb by limb with a double-handed saw, even then... Whoever of you harbors ill will at heart would not be upholding my teachings. It's a pretty high bar, huh? You know, that even no matter what's coming at us, and there are actually 
some beings that are able to do this. Some of the Tibetan monks feel compassion for their um, tormentors and, and that, um, some of the soldiers that have harmed them. They actually pray for them because their hearts are lost in hatred. So the possibility of being able to be equanimous and not filled with ill will and hatred even when we ourselves may be feeling um, attacked in those ways. Um, Ajahn Chah, the forest um, master, um, says um, in Non-Abiding that um, the Buddha is still here. The truth and knowing of the Buddha which enabled the Buddha to become the Buddha is still here. And whoever practices and sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. Ajahn Amaro, one of the forest monks and teachers, says, however, do not However, do take care to investigate whether your experience of non-reactivity comes from a place of wisdom and not just aversion or spiritual bypassing. The balance, and this is something we can experience ourselves, is not negation. It comes when we stop creating each other and allow ourselves to relax in pure knowing. This cannot happen when we're busy carrying around me and you and it's my life and my past and my future that's actually a result of relinquishment, not a numbness of distancing, but an astonishing attunement. So when we begin to open our hearts and stop seeing the other as other, and we start to recognize our, our deep shared humanity, our Buddha nature, our inherent goodness, we can begin to respond more and more from wisdom and less reactivity. Um, And I'd like to close with a couple other readings, if you'll allow me, and then we'll open up for you to share with each other and then any discussion. So um, uh, Joan Halifax included um, some piece from uh, Cornell West's graduation speech at Harvard, and um, I I then went and read part of it um, myself online. and, And this is him owning... And, and looking, doing that inner work, and then inspiring others to do theirs. He says, as I look at myself, I can see the white supremacy in me. But oh, when I was in Charlottesville looking into the eyes of those sick neo-Nazi white brothers, gangster slugs, I didn't lose sight of the gangster in me. I try to reconquer it every day, and they need a little more work but they're still made in the same image of God that I serve. They can kill me as they can kill so many others in my tradition. Talk about me, trash me, misunderstand me, but I'm not going to stoop so low that I lose sight of their humanity and they're on the same continuum. It's a fundamental challenge for the younger generation in these polarized Time so easy to go off in your own corner, your own silo, and think somehow you're so empowered and enabled and able to engage in the battlefield when you yourself have spiritual emptiness. It's hard to be the change you're talking about that's required of all these traditions as deep human challenges. And then he encourages people to, to have joy He said, um, I told the undergrad class at the black graduation yesterday, I said, don't let anybody take your funk away. They want to deodorize and sanitize you, sterilize you. He said, don't confuse success with greatness. He He invites people to fail. Fail with all your revolutionary joy. Fail with that subversive piety. Fail with your intellectual humility and your spiritual intensity. Are you ready? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Um, And I'll close with Joe Harjo. The morning I pray for my enemies. And whom do I call an enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is a smaller cousin of the sun. 
It sees and it knows. It hears the gnashing even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. The enemy that gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. So let's sit. Let's let the words go and, um, and just take a moment to notice whatever's present now. And then um, invite you to turn to a neighbor or two, introduce yourself if you don't know each other. And maybe let's spend some time um, in community with one another, just sharing about some of how you're being with your own um, moral um, suffering in whatever way that's showing up for you and some ways that you're being with or responding um, even however small um, granular ways and, uh, and then we'll come back together as a group for a little more closure and our final um, share, uh, sharing the merit thank you Hello. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to what your definition of equanimity is. Um, I feel like sometimes when I've heard it in the past or looked it up on my own, it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, yeah. Thank you for your question. What's your name? Oh, sorry. My name is Joe. Jim? Joe. Joe. Sorry. Hi, Joe. Um, appreciate the question of equanimity. I think it's... Um, quite a a practice to explore. Um, There's not a simple answer. Um, Is there something about it that you're particularly um, questioning or, you know, about it? I guess maybe in like its simplest form, what what is it? What is equanimity? Okay. So all I can say is that for me, it is that grounding that balance of mind and heart where I'm not either lost in the reactivity, where I can stay present with things as they are, with some spaciousness of mind and heart. Um, so, And I think that finding or discovering ways to balance your body, heart, and mind is like a lifelong practice. Um, at one point uh, that was particularly stressful and ungrounding in my life, um, I, one of my, my guides, teachers, mentors suggested I practice every day, and I did, and it really helped a lot. Like, it's like, you know, what is your redwood tree? What is your rock? What is your way of being in the waves and coming back? So sometimes it's that resiliency, it's that capacity to, to be, and then when you get knocked down, to come back up. And, um, and it's like a muscle. So I think it's a living practice and a process. And, um, and I'd be curious if other people want to share what that equanimity is for them. But I know it's, it takes um, a lot of practice, and it's over time, just like being, what's being mindful, what's compassion. So these are, um, this is like the queen or the king. This is like the... Um, one of the greatest um, of the four noble abodes is the equanimity, the capacity to be like the earth, to be like the sky, to be that able to be receive whatever it is without being shaken. It's like next to enlightenment. Yes, would you like to share, Lewis? Lewis. Yeah. Being able to ride the waves of whatever arises. Thank you. Beautiful. Short and sweet. Love it. Yes. Another comment. Yeah. 
uh, following that, I would say ride the waves and staying um, in the middle path from attachment and aversion. Yes. So hardly, that is so hard not to be aversive to, to experiences when they appear or not to attach to the experiences that are pleasurable ones. Thank you. Thank you. Got a lot of wisdom here. Yes? Thank you. Hi, I'm Jessica. Uh, I think I used to misunderstand equanimity as sort of um, pulling away from the world and not engaging. Mm-hmm. But really what's helped me is thinking of it as like not grasping that definition. So it's not about um, you know shutting the world out and being just peaceful away from the world, but it's about not being attached to outcomes or the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and not grasping. That was something that was helpful to me to understand. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Um. Hi, my name is Pam. Um, so I think back to, like, when I was in, you know, the early 80s, being a young lesbian feminist and all my anger and all my, you know, all the battles. And now I feel like I'm trying to have this peace, Mm -hmm. but I'm so mad, you know, and everybody around me is so mad. And so I don't know where the moral outrage stops and starts anymore because I know how I was in my 20s and 30s. But, you know, I'm going to be 60 pretty soon, and it's like... Okay. <laughs> Is there another path? Well, we're on it together, and we're, we're, you know, it's a work in progress. And as you noticed, I didn't offer any answers, just guidelines, right? So, um, again, it's how to have equanimity, how to practice, have peace, non-reactivity, yet also feel and open to the suffering. So it is a, a living Practice and it is at these times. It's very, very like, you know, a rich, fertile time for practice. Because otherwise, you'll we'll be lost, right? We'll just be burning in flames, and we'll be doing that recreational bitterness and whining, complaining, and reacting. So I think again, what what's being put out as antidote too is find whatever granular, small ways, or acts and actions, as well as engaging engaged Buddhism with other communities and people doing the inner work and the outer work. So so find your ways, however small, to respond and act. And um, I'm trying, I'm continuing to find mine. Some is meeting with others, like yourself, ourselves, to say, okay, how do I stay grounded? What can I do? What I can I not do? How, that's and how to practice. And um, and then where to engage and how to support. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. It's a hot fire. Thank you for fighting for future generations of us. Yes. Yes. I mean, this is not a wimpy practice. This is fierce compassion. This is really standing, being willing to stand for what our values are in the Dharma, not harming. You know, and... Uh, you know, um, Gandhi took action. He didn't just sit there, right? And uh, so that's our, our model. Martin Luther King didn't just sit there. Yeah? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one more, and then we'll finish with some dedicating the merit. Thank you. So we're activists as well. I think I fight with the opposite of equanimity, mm-hmm. and I'm going to call it aversion. Yes. Pretty close. Yes. Uh, and how that in my memory and my experience, if somebody treated me badly, parent, elder, that I transfer that to other people, which is not fair, but I do it, and that's when equanimity can help to release that bond. It's not the other person's fault. It's the person, part of your experience that created it. Yeah, thank you. That makes sense? Yes, thank you, thank you, yeah. And uh, I think, again, the work has to start here in our own hearts, right? And looking at our own internalized, um, you know, greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, 
um, doing our work and then you know living according to our values as best we can. Yeah. So thank you everyone. Let's dedicate the merit and also um, um, offer loving kindness, equanimity, compassion out into to one another and this world and that we have all the support we need for this journey and that we have a strong community that is engaged and supporting us. We cannot do this alone. And the Dharma is um, a great support. So let's take a moment. We'll let the words go. Thank you for your presence. And again, I apologize for any of my, my own um, unskillfulness and uh, any harm I may have caused, intentionally or unintentionally. And let's dedicate the merit and the benefits of our practice, our coming together tonight, and our deepest intentions for peace in this world to the benefit and awakening of all sentient beings everywhere, including ourselves and this earth in all places and times. And if you wish, you can bring to mind the people and places of suffering at this time in the world. May we be free from suffering. May we all know true peace, true happiness, and freedom, liberation from suffering. Peace. We'll just radiate some loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Let it radiate out in all directions. Including oneself. Thank you, everyone, and thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.